All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. And I want to thank you all for coming and joining us this afternoon. We're going to be talking about uh, what I think is uh, an important subject, several important subjects. And um, I'll tell you why with our first slide here briefly. And then we'll, uh, then we'll get right into our discussion for today. Let's bow our heads to begin with, though, for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, today we, we realize that as we handle divine things, we are, we are much in need of your Spirit's guidance. We are but finite and you are infinite. We are sinners and sinful and you are holy and your truth is holy. And so, Lord, we, we confess our need and we claim the promise of your Holy Spirit today. Be with us that we might understand better how we are to live, how we can best uh, be a part of your final revival and reformation that will take place on this earth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Whenever I think of revival, I also think of reformation. They're sort of like these two terms. They're not synonymous, but they go together. They're, they're, um, they're sort of like hand in glove almost. They're, 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 uh, they're a combination of ideas that must go together. And let me share with you this statement from the Spirit of Prophecy, which is probably my 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 first recollection when I think of revival and reformation, because it gives us a bit of a definition of what these two concepts, these two terms signify. Revival and reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and reformation are what? Can all of you see okay from, from back there? Uh, Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from the spiritual death. That's a revival. A ri revival is something that takes place in our heart. Revival is where, where those who have not felt the peace, but instead have felt guilt, where those who have not had the love of Jesus filling their hearts, instead have had selfishness, their heart has changed. It's a miracle. It's not something that can be done for us by any person. It's not something we can do for ourselves. It's a miracle we sometimes call conversion, right? It's something that takes place within us. The Holy Spirit has to bring that new birth experience. Reformation, on the other hand, signifies a what? A reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits and practices. So you see these two concepts sort of... Um, Opposed to each other, not opposed, but contrasted to each other. One is what takes place inside. The other, you could say, takes place more outside. Uh, ideas and theories, that's, that's inside too, I guess. That's more intellectual rather than a spirit or attitude or heart. But the, what takes place in the theories and the, the ad, and, and ideas, the habits and practices, that's the way we live our lives. That's where Reformation comes to play. Now, why are these so intimately connected. She says, Reformation will not bring the, forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and Reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. You see, if we just have a revival, we have maybe just an emotional experience. We may just have a lot of feelings. We may just have a, we may just have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, well, sometimes people have termed revival just, just emotional trips. And um, on the other hand, if we just have a reformation, 
We could sink into mere formalism and legalism and focusing on the externals. And in, according to this statement, and I believe according to what the Bible teaches, we have to have both. You know, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about some things today, especially in this first, this first hour, that may, may, may seem like detail-oriented. We're going to be talking about some of the lifestyle issues that are, that are involved with Reformation. And to some people, these things are simply legalism. I'll, I mean, we just have to be honest. Some people will view, anytime you talk about lifestyle, they're going to say, well, that's legalism. It doesn't matter. What matters is our relationship. And they, in that, I think they tend to probably favor more the revival side than the Reformation side, instead of blending the two of them. But the fact of the matter is that we could do these things very legalistically. We could do them just as a set of externals. We could do them just as something we do on the outside. And, and you know, we're very quick to find fault with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you recall, were very good at the externals, right? They, could, they, they, they divided up all the different legal restrictions and regulations and, and uh, all the lifestyle things they had down. And um, we, we criticize them for that. But Jesus did not criticize them for that. Do you, do you realize that? Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you, meant, you tithe of your mint and anise and cumin, while you neglect the weightier matters of the law of righteousness and judge justice. So what they were doing is they were being very particular about the externals. Can you imagine harvesting the herbs from your garden and counting your, your, your seeds? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, one for tithe. One, two. Now that's, that's pretty amazingly detailed, right? But what's surprising was, is what Jesus said. When he, say, he continues, we often stop there. Woe to you, fries and scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe and all this. He says, this you should have, should have done and not left the other undone. So there's nothing wrong with being particular about the way we live our lives if it's done in the right spirit, if it's springing from the right cause. You understand what I'm saying? I want to just say this from the very beginning because I don't want, I don't want anyone to come from here and say, on one hand, well, we were just talking about all the legalism, the do's and don'ts, and you have to do this external type stuff, Reformation. We are talking about the Reformation here. But I wanted to be very clear that Reformation is only worth anything if, it accompanies, if it's blended with a revival of the heart, if it's coming from a heart of love. And I think that, I hope that what we talk about here in these next few minutes is going to, be, is going to help us um, evaluate our own lifestyle and how we approach our lifestyle and maybe even how we approach others who have a different lifestyle. And I hope it's from a balanced perspective. Because I feel like there's ditches on either side when we start talking about lifestyle. There are ditches on either side. And many people have particular convictions of things that are good, but they have a, perhaps a wrong way of trying to communicate the importance of it to someone else. And that leads them into trouble. And often if we communicate the right things the wrong way, people reject the right things. 
And so I'm hoping that I'm hoping we have time to cover uh, what I what I've planned here to share, and I hope that we can we can do so in a way that's going to be helpful for us. Well, I believe that Adventism is a continuation of the Reformation. Early Adventists had a keen sense of their role and mission within Christianity, as they saw Protestants drifting from the sole sola scriptura principle, the Bible and the Bible only, and beginning even though they said they were Protestants and they believed in sola scriptura, they began to uh, to attach themselves to traditions such as the Sabbath and state of the dead and other other teachings that early Adventists said that can't be based in Scripture, sola scriptura. That is that is taken from the tradition of Christianity. They viewed themselves in the Seventh Day Adventist movement as being called by God to continue the application of the Protestant principles, such as sola scriptura, and to extend the work of the Reformation to its completion. That's the way early Adventism had a viewed itself. That was its self-awareness, a continuation of the Reformation. They did not see themselves as antithetical or opposed to the movement of the Reformation. In fact, if you read the book Great Controversy, you will read Ellen Ellen White's treatment of one after another after another after another of the Reformers. How many of you read Great Controversy? Quite a few of you. If you read Great Controversy, you'll find that she basically makes heroes out of each of the reformers. Have you ever gotten that impression? I mean, as a young person growing up, I was thrilled with with Luther and with Calvin, with with Zwingli and with all, you know, Huss and Jerome and and Wycliffe. And as you just go down through the different reformers, she presents how God used them to bring light to a world that was very dark. That's the focus of her presentation. She does not focus on the things which we disagree with, with each of those reformers. And there are significant issues that we would have with each of those reformers, basically all of them. Uh, Significant. I mean, we, as Adventism, we came out of Methodism, which is, in her day, was a distinctly different strain of Christianity from the establishment of Presbyterianism and, and, uh, and the Congregationalism and the, the Calvinist side of the Reformation. We, we came from a totally different perspective, but the way Ellen White portrays it, we are simply, we're simply walking on their shoulders. That's the way she presents it. And she sees Adventism as a continuation of how God used people to bring light, successively greater light, to the, to the Christian world. And so she says in the book Great Controversy, page 148 and 40, 149, the Reformation did not, as many suppose, end with Luther. It is to be continued to the close of this world's history. Luther had a great work to do in reflecting to others the light which God had permitted to shine upon him, yet he did not receive all the light which was to be given to the world. From that time to this, new light has been continually shining upon the Scriptures, and new truths have been continually unfolding. My interest in history, I think my fascination with church history is that it's, it's thrilling to see how God un- continually unfolds new truth, building on the experiences of those who have gone before. I mean, oh, there's so many lines that can be traced through the Protestant Reformation all the way down to Adventism and down to the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. So many fascinating influences that one man had on another man and another man and another man and generations built on the shoulders of the great spiritual giants who went before. And that's the way God intended it to be. And God intended Adventism to complete the work of the Reformation. Now that since chills down my spine because that means we have a very heavy responsibility. 
we're not just any ordinary group of people here. We're, if, if I read my Bible correctly, God raised up the Advent movement, and it is to be the last movement of Bible prophecy. And it is to complete the work of the Reformation which was begun. That means that we are to be able to understand the truths which they have discovered and be able to build upon further truths. And so we can, if, we look at, um, if we look at one of those biblical passages which describe, I believe, the Advent movement, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I believe this is describing the message that God would bring, a message like the Elijah message of old. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, <clears throat> Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. John the Baptist was sort of a type of, or a, a, sort of a partial fulfillment, you might say, of this, this prophecy. He came to prepare for Jesus' first coming, right? And the message that he had was very much like the message of Elijah. He was, a, he was saying, repent, and he was calling for a revival and reformation. He was calling God's people back to the word and to the will of God. But here, this is specifically specifying the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's not the, the first coming. That's the second coming. And here, Elijah the prophet is to return. Uh, it, we don't believe this is talking specifically about Elijah himself coming down from heaven as he was translated there and uh, giving another message. We don't believe that. We believe the Elijah message is to be given. And today, Adventism sees itself as being called to fill those types of shoes, to stand in the place of Elijah here and to say, listen to the Christian world, listen, who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey man? Are you going to follow the word of God or are you going to follow the traditions of men? That is the a message God has called us to give as we ha are calling the Christian world, particularly back to the true understanding of God's word. To us, as God's servant, has been entrusted the third angel's message, the binding off message, that is to prepare a people for the coming of our king. Now, if, if you haven't figured that out already, um, that message is going to be different than the rest of the Christian world's message, right? If we have a different work to do, it's going to have to be accomplished by a different message. And In fact, Ellen White says in, in uh, Testimonies, Volume 5, As a people, we are looked upon as peculiar. Our position and faith distinguish us from every other denomination. So if you're wanting to just blend in and be the same as the rest of Christianity, you're not going to be able to do the Elijah work. You're not going to be able to give the Elijah message. We have a distinctive message. In fact, she says further in, in Fundamentals of Christian Education, when we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, worldlings will regard Seventh-day Adventists as what? Odd, singular, straight-laced extremists. Now, I don't like that statement, but I can't change the fact that it's there. I don't like being considered an odd, singular, or straight-laced extremist. And by the way, I don't think we should try to be odd or singular or straight-laced or extreme, right? We shouldn't try to be in those categories. But the fact is that that which is highly regarded among men, Jesus said, is an abomination with God. People think differently than God thinks. And if we're going to reach the standard God would have us to reach, this is way, how the world is going to see us. Again, we should, be able to, we should be trying to find common ground. We should be building bridges. We should do everything we can. We shouldn't try to be odd. Being odd, singular, straight-laced, or extreme does not make you fit God's ideal. All right? 
So, but this is just important for us to understand that this will happen. The world is not going to, the, the world didn't receive Jesus. He's not going to receive us if we're walking in his steps, right? Now, let's look at a couple of things. And I'm going to focus, we're going to focus here mostly, uh, for example, on diet here in a little while. And I'm not wanting to get into the specifics of diet. We're going to be looking some at Adventist history, and we're going to be looking at how God brought us the health message, okay? And we're going to be looking, then I want to look at, I, want, I hope that we have time in the, in the few minutes that we have today. I want to look at some principles of how we can determine what are major issues, whether it's in diet, whether it's in dress, whether it's entertainment, whether it's in any other lifestyle issue. I want us to be able to look at principles of how we can determine what are things that we should be sort of dogmatic about and what are things that we should at times be able to be flexible about. Because I think sometimes, especially in, in conservative Adventist circles, we have difficulty making any type of a clear demarcation between those two sets of concepts and having, having a, a good rubric for how we've come to that demarcation. And so some people say, well, I think this is important. Some people say that's important. Some people say, well, it's just whatever you're convicted about. If you're convicted about it, then it's sin for you. If you're not convicted about it, then it's fine for you to go ahead and do it. There's all kinds of ideas, and I just want us to spend a little bit of time because I found that for me it's very helpful to try to understand why are we doing some of the things we're doing, okay? And is this something that, this is something that I have to do, or is this something that's a moral issue, or is this something, you understand what I'm saying? You hear all these terms, and I hope that we can, we can make some headway. So let's talk about country living very briefly here. I just threw this in. It's not really, um, it's not really part of our main topic, but it is one of those lifestyle issues that I think have an effect in helping prepare God's people for the last days. It was not God's purpose that people should be crowded into cities, huddled together in terraces and tenements. In the beginning, he placed our first parents amidst the beautiful sights and sounds he desires us to rejoice in today. The more nearly we come into harmony with God's original plan, the more favorable will be our position to secure health of body and mind and soul. Now, that last sentence is very important to me. Because you'll find that almost every time we're talking about lifestyle issues, the, the real bottom line is there's an advantage to be gained. Are you with me? There's an advantage to be gained. We'll get to what, how Ellen White describes that a little later. But, um, oh, well, maybe it'll be tomorrow. So I'll just go ahead and say now. Um, she says that something better is the watchword of education, the law of all true living. Something better, that in quotation marks, something better. So whenever we talk about lifestyle issues, and I'll be talking about that when we talk about education tomorrow, because I believe that's a part of the Reformation that Adventism has been called to complete. And uh, we need to think about these things, because um, Ellen White says, if we fail to understand the science of education, we will fail to gain an entrance to the kingdom of heaven. So um, <clears throat> there, it's an important matter. But here we find that the only reason God calls us the country living is because it gives us advantages. Advantages to preparing for the second coming, to being ready for Jesus' return. It says, uh, the, the more nearly we come into harmony with God's original plan, the more favorable will be our position to secure health of body and mind and soul. It's an advantage. This isn't something we should have, okay, these are the things I feel guilty about. These are the things I really, I, I, I've got to do just because I've got to do it. No. It should be something we say, God wants the very best for me. I'm going to, now we can't always, we can't always just pick up and move into the country, right? So we're going to do the best where we are, right? That's the goal. The goal is always to get, have the best that we can do. That's all God asks of us. And for many people, 
It does mean moving into the country because they can if they make some sacrifices, maybe financial sacrifices to save their family, to save their souls. What is it worth, right? So let's move on, though, to one of the, one of the major advantages that God gave us for preparing a people to be ready for the second coming, for continuing that of the, Re- the Reformation. And by the way, the, uh, the, Reform- uh, the Seventh-day Adventists were not the first to begin teaching health messages and health reforms. Other Protestants, other reformers had an inkling, particularly if we look back to the pietist movement in Germany. After the days of Luther, there were, there were men who arose like um, Frank and others who were, who were uh, teaching um, a, more, uh, a message more of the heart, whereas um, Lutheranism was um, a magisterial reformation, we call it, because it, 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 it still basically had a very close tie between church and state. And it was very easy to become a reformer. Basically, the whole city became a, ref, a, a Protestant city, right? It was very easy for, for um, Protestantism in that context to simply be intellectual. And the pietists said, we need a religion of the heart. And so the pietists are a whole movement that we as Adventists have a lot to, to uh, identify with. And um, we'll perhaps have some time to talk about that a little more um, when we talk um, about some of the other continuations of the Reformation. But when we talk about health reform, Adventists were pioneers in many areas. And I want to just share, first of, you, first of all, a few statements of why, um, why God gave us this advantage of health reform. This is from Councils on Diets and Foods, page 47. You need clear, energetic minds in order to appreciate the exalted character of the truth, to value the atonement, and to place the right estimate upon eternal things. If you, so what do we need in order to have that spiritual experience? Clear, energetic minds. If you pursue a wrong course and indulge in wrong habits of eating, and thereby weaken the intellectual powers, you will not place that high estimate upon salvation and eternal life, which will inspire you to conform your life to the life of Christ. You will not make those earnest, self-sacrificing efforts for entire conformity to the will of God, which His Word requires, and which are necessary to give you a moral fitness for the finishing touch of immortality. Does that sound like health might be related to preparing a people for the second coming? Now, notice that it's, it's, the, the idea is... She's not here giving us, in this statement, a list of do's and don'ts. If you do this, you see, you have to, in order to be prepared for translation, you have to stop doing this, and you have to stop doing this. What she's saying is, in order to be prepared for translation, you need, you need to have good, clear minds, energetic minds, right? I feel like sometimes, as Seventh-day Adventists, we're clear, we want specifics, you know? It's, it's sort of the lazy man's way out. We want specifics. We, we, that's why, well... We like checklists. We like just things like, do this, okay, I'm doing that, and I feel good about it, you know, sort of pat myself on the shoulder. When sometimes we follow our checklists while we're not even, we're not even obtaining the best health for our mind and body, right? And so she, it's very clear that she's talking about the purpose behind it is to make us healthier. Anything that lessens physical strength and feebles the mind and makes it less capable of discriminating between right and wrong. We become less capable of choosing the good and have less strength of will to do that which we know to be right. I don't know about you, but I need all the strength of will that I can get by God's grace. And so when I think of the times ahead, I realize I want the healthiest body possible. Those who have had the light upon the subject of eating and drinking and dressing with simplicity in obedience to moral and physical laws still turn from the light which points out their duty will shun duty in other things. 
By shunning the cross which they would have to take in order to be in harmony with natural law, they blunt the conscience, and they will, to avoid reproach, violate the Ten Commandments. There is with some a decided unwillingness to endure the cross and despise the shame. Continuing on, she says, Some cannot be impressed with the necessity of eating and drinking to the glory of God. The indulgence of appetite affects them in all the relations of life. It is seen in their family, in their church, in the prayer meeting, and in the conduct of their children. It has been the curse of their lives. What is it? The indulgence of appetite is the curse of their lives. You cannot make them understand the truth for these last days. God has bountifully provided for the sustenance and happiness of all His creatures. And if His laws were never violated and all acted in harmony with the divine will, health, peace, and happiness instead of misery and continual evil would be experienced. So health reform, the message of health reform was given to us as a people as a blessing. As a what? As a blessing. Now let's look, about, look at a little bit of the history and see how that took place. Probably the preeminent health reformer among Adventism was a man by the name of Joseph Bates. You would have expected that health reform would have come from one of the preachers or one of the teachers or maybe one of the doctors like uh, you know, John Harvey Kellogg or some of the others. Well, John Harvey wasn't around. Maybe he would have if he had, he wasn't probably even born back, when, back in the early days of, of Adventism. He wouldn't come around till the, the 1880s as a, as a doctor. But Joseph Bates, of course, was, um, was a not a pastor or a preacher or a educator or a doctor. He was the unlikeliest candidate for a health reformer. He was a sea captain. <laughs> and sea captains, I mean, what are sh sailors known for, right? They're not exactly known for their, their, uh, their uh, teetotaling ways, their healthy ways. They're, they're known as being alcoholics, maybe, you know, being sort of coarse, rough type people. In fact, um, Joseph Bates had quite a story. I mean, he grew up, um, his father was actually very concerned that he was going into the, into the business of uh, shipping and sailing because he knew the kinds of influences they would find there. And um, <clears throat> he, he had quite an experience sailing around the world and, and being captured during the War for Independence uh, by the British and, and uh, made to work in the galleys as a, as a forced laborer and so forth, and finally became, uh, earned a, a prisoner of war status. And anyway, when he, comes back to the, when he comes back to the U.S. and his father has, um, was, is, is fearful of what his son has become during all these, these uh, ex escapades of uh, travel, he actually found that that Joseph had, had decided that he wasn't going to drink. He had seen that lifestyle, and he wasn't going to drink. He was, he was content, though, that he would, have a, um, he would limit himself to one glass of alcohol. I think it was just wine, uh, uh, usually in his evening meal. And as he was sailing uh, later um, in 1821, he came to the realization that he was looking forward to the glass of alcohol more than he was looking to, forward to the evening meal. And he realized that even though he thought himself above addiction, he was being addicted. He was addicted. And so in 1821, he decided he would no longer touch alcohol. He would have no more alcohol. And he had no more alcohol. Now, this is 20 years before the, before the Advent movement, right? So this isn't, this isn't um, as a result of the spirit of prophecy or anything else. In 1823, two years later, um, he was somewhere, I think, in South America, and he was leaving the port and um, was it Brazil? 
he was leaving the port and he was on deck with another sea captain and they were discussing the evils of tobacco and um, the other sea captain took his tobacco and he chucked it overboard and he said, there goes my tobacco, I'm finished with it. And uh, Joseph Bates said, well, if he's finished with it, I'm going to be finished with it too. And never again would tobacco pass his lips. That's 1823. 1828, he came to the realization that... that um, tea and coffee were not very good for him. And this is something that was... He he, he had no scientific evidence, because in those days, doctors weren't saying that tea and coffee weren't good for you, right? He had no inspired evidence. The Bible doesn't enumerate tea or coffee, and certainly there wasn't any prophetic message that he received. What happened is one night he had drunk some tea, and he found himself unable to go to sleep till the early hours of the morning. And he decided, you know what? This can't be good for you. This is like some sort of stimulation, you know, it's not healthy. And so he quit drinking tea, and a few weeks later, he quit drinking coffee as well, just got rid of it. So he's, drink, he's got rid of tobacco and alcohol, now tea and coffee. It was in 1839 before he heard the Advent message and became attached to promoting the Adventist message. So you can understand God's been working in his life now for almost 20 years on the area of health reform. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting also that it would be Joseph Bates who um, would become prominent and the foremost in promoting the Sabbath message among the early Adventists. I believe that God has done something with Joseph Bates' mind. Even though he's just a sea captain, he has had 20 years of progressively becoming healthier for his mind to be clearer, for him to be able to understand deep theological issues. Isn't that amazing? And so here he, he understands the Advent message, he, he believes it, and he begins promoting it, and he puts his own for personal fortune, because by this time he has basically retired at a young age, sold his shipping company, he owned ships, he sold it all, and he has quite a fortune, but he puts that fortune into printing tracts and leaflets um, to promote the Advent message and later to promote the Sabbath message. And so in 1843, he became a vegetarian. And the story of how he became a vegetarian is very interesting. And again, this was, long before, this was long before any Adventists were vegetarians. This was before Adventists were. But um, here he's, 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 he, was, he was loading a ship, or he was having his ship loaded with salt, or salt loaded into his ship, um, on the, in Dublin or somewhere in um, England. But there were some Irishmen who were... Who were actually? I'm not sure where it was, but his ship was being loaded, and there were Irishmen who were shoveling the salt. And he noticed there were two Irishmen that were shoveling more than a crew of nine. And he was like, "What is it with these Irishmen? Like they just they just keep shoveling these big shovelfuls without stopping for breaks, while this other group of nine they were um, either British or Americans, wherever side of the Atlantic he was on, and they were they were having to take rest, they're having to take breaks." And he found out that the Irishmen were, were immigrants who were poor, and they were living in a boarding house where their meals were also inexpensive, and they had no meat. It was just vegetables and grains. And he became convinced from watching Irishmen shovel salt, the vegetarian diet was the, a better diet for promoting health. And he became a vegetarian. Soon afterwards, he also dispensed with the use of of like fried goods and heavy uh, fats and uh, sweets and cakes. He says, I determined to make my diet as simple as possible. This is 1843. 
Okay, this was long before the Adventists had a health message. It's very, very interesting. 1845, he hears the Sabbath message, and as I mentioned, he became foremost in promoting this, the Sabbath message. Now, 1848 was the first time that the larger body of Seventh-day Adventists would have a message from God on the area of health. 1848, Ellen White was shown in vision the dangers of, of basically three things, tobacco, tea, and coffee. Tobacco, tea, and coffee. This is four years after the Great Disappointment. This is, you know, just a, almost four years into her ministry as a messenger of the Lord. And Ellen White has given this vision regarding tobacco, tea, and coffee. Now, do you think, you think um, Joseph Bates was pleased with this? I'm sure he was. I don't know of any reaction that he had directly, but I do know this. It's very difficult for anyone to, to, it would be very difficult for anyone today to argue that Ellen White was simply, she made up that vision and just was taking what Joseph Bates was saying and agreeing with him. You know, some of her critics might try to say something like that. The problem was, in 1848, nothing in that vision said anything about vegetarianism or any of the other health practices that Joseph Bates was also promoting. And in fact, Joseph Bates was very humble about his health message. When someone asked him why he didn't drink tea or coffee, you know what he would say? He said, I've had my share of those. <laughs> That's the way he responded. I've had my share of those. And when, he, would, he would virtually never bring these subjects up. When asked, he would explain why. But he was very wise and very humble about the way he shared his convictions in the health message. And you remember, he, now he's been a part, he's been, he's been sharing the Sabbath message, right? But he hasn't been publishing tracts on vegetarianism or on tea or coffee or any of those things. Those are something the Lord has led him to, he's grown in, and I believe he had an advantage in. But now God is bringing that advantage to the wider group of Adventists. And he gives Ellen White the message of, of tobacco, tea, and coffee not being healthful. And that his, God's people should avoid their use. Now, for, for a number of years, for most of the next decade, Adventism would not make a particular stand. I mean, we weren't organized as a church with membership and all that. But there was no type of church discipline or anything like that. Many Adventists did continue to smoke Many Adventists did continue to use tobacco tea and, tea and coffee. And so, but there, this message was now being given. And it was given more and more that God wanted his people to be healthy. And that these were things that were not very conducive to good health. Now, um, in 1850, two years later, very interesting, there's a couple who have who come with the message that they believe, from their understanding of the Bible, that we should stop eating pigs. Both James White writes in the Adventist periodicals, as well as Ellen White writes, not having any particular... She does not have a vision or say, I was shown, or anything like that, but she, both James and Ellen White write that this is not the message of God for his people this time. And Ellen White's letter, you can, you can read it if you want to look it up online or I can share it with you. Um, Ellen White's letter basically says, God is moving a people and teaching a people truth, not just one or two people. And when it's time for God's, for truth, new truth, new light to come to God's people, he won't just reveal it to one or two. He'll reveal it to the body. And they, the, the, the wider body will see the, the wisdom. So, 1850... Uh, 
You know, uh, Joseph Bates already been a vegetarian for seven years, and Adventists, James and Nolan White uh, particularly, are arguing why we should not make it a necessity to stop eating pork. And um, James White um, wrote, in fact, he, he argued that the, the vision of Peter in Acts chapter 10 shows that clean uh, and unclean meats are no longer a distinction for the New Testament church. All things that he would later, of course, recant when he came to a better understanding of himself. And I think it's important to just point out again, Ellen White never said, I was shown or God told me this isn't. This was simply, she had not received light on this. The body wasn't prepared for it. And she says this is not something we should agitate at this time. So what I, what, um, as, we, as we come down to the, um, the, the 1860s, we have the major health vision at its Oswego, Michigan. And this is what we know as the health reform vision. This was one of those major visions which Ellen White had. You know, we have like the great controversy vision, and this is the health reform vision. And this is really, this was the same year the Adventist church was organized as a denomination. And God here now shows Ellen White that these messages on pork and unclean meats is a message for God's people this time. The church now was ready for it. Many other people have been studying it. And as Ellen White receives this vision, she now begins to include counsels about the use of unclean meats. Now notice with me, how many years after tobacco, tea, and coffee do we get the message on pork? <clears throat> Fifteen years. This is very interesting to me to study this history because it begins to tell me something about the priorities that God has. If God's in the business of cleaning people's minds and clearing their minds, what are the most important things? It seems to me that he would use some sort of a intentional hierarchy of most important issues, right? And here he has started with tobacco, tea, and coffee. And for 15 years, he has allowed his people to continue eating clean and unclean meats. And um, we come down to 1863, and now the major health vision um, leads to a, a, a denomination-wide change in understanding of the matter of clean and unclean meats. But this is fascinating to me because we're talking today about continuing the Reformation. If we're going to continue the Reformation, we should at least be continuing what our pioneers began, right? And um, I don't want to get on a hobby horse here because we're going to be talking more about what's most important and what's not most important. But I, I, hope that, um, I hope that as we go through that, that you'll be able to sort of sort this issue out too. But it's ironic to me that most Adventists will not even think about touching pork, which I wouldn't either. And um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think there's any reason to. But they have no difficulty with caffeinated drinks. When 18 years before the message on pork, we got the light on caffeine. Isn't that interesting? And I don't say this because I want you to any way to go out and point fingers at anyone else, but if it's something that would be applicable to your life, I'd, I'd, I'd just ask you to consider, why am I so opposed to eating pork, but why, why will I drink a Coke or Pepsi or Mountain Dew or whatever it is? You understand what I'm saying? Because it makes no sense in my mind. It makes no sense. I don't believe you should go out and eat pork. But um, if you want to get some, some good Adventists a little riled up, just tell them, I'd rather eat a good you know, pork rib than drink a cup of coffee. Oh, my. 
I don't recommend either. But you'll get some really excited people on your hands. Because, because that's contrary to our culture. Do you see what we've done? Somehow, in the last 150 years, we have actually begin to, begun to think just by tradition. Instead of in the light of inspiration. And we've, 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 now I understand there are some differences, and we'll talk about this a little later. Um, there are some differences in that the Bible specifically talks about clean and unclean meat, and we believe there's a biblical basis, whereas the Bible doesn't specifically talk about caffeine, right? And so there is room for someone to be not convicted about that issue, because it's not clear, and they can't, they can't you, you don't know that they're actually in, in violation of, of what they understand to be the Word of God. But I want to just give you a little principle here that I have found to be useful in my um, evangelistic efforts through the years. And that is simply in explaining to people that, it, that, that, that God is in the business of setting us free from sin. Sin destroys the image of God and destroys the power of choice in our hearts and lives. God and the gospel restores the power of choice. Are you with me? Those two distinctions, we could develop them, but I think you're, you're, you get the picture, right? God and the gospel is all about restoring our power of choice, which is a major part of the image of God in man. Anything that is chemically addicting serves rather to destroy our power of choice, our power of will, rather than to strengthen it and to restore it. Are you with me? So that's how I've always explained. Even though the Bible doesn't talk about tobacco, it doesn't talk about caffeine, it's chemically addicting, it it. it, it it destroys the image of God in my soul rather than building up the image of God. It destroys my ability to make decisions, exercise my willpower, rather than affirming it and strengthening it. So that's the, that's the understanding that I've made. Now, the problem is that on one hand, some take matters of little importance and impose guilt on themselves and others. While on the other hand, some treat matters of moral and major significance with indifference and carelessness. Are you, are you following the problem that I think we see within Adventism today? There are some who are saying there's this matter, and I think this is really important, and therefore you, you should feel guilty, and you are guilty if you don't do this or you do this. And they use that guilt as a motivator to try to get people to, uh, to practice what they consider health reform. It may be health reform. It may be health deform. It may, simply be a, it may simply be one particular aspect of health reform, which focused on entirely um, is not health reform at all. And just in the area of diet, we could, look, we could talk about some specifics. And I don't want here to get into long dis discussions about any of these specifics. That's something we can study on, on our own. But we have things like baking soda in the spirit of prophecy, right? Maybe vinegar in the spirit of prophecy. You have dairy or refined grains, alcohol, caffeine, mixing fruits and vegetables, unclean meats. There's, all, there's a whole gamut of issues that could be, could be debated within Adventism, and they are debated within Adventism, right? And so how do we understand which ones are really important? Now, as you read that list, some you, probably you came up with the ideas of which ones you think are important, which ones you don't think are important, okay? Probably not everyone here in the room and not every Adventist would come up with the same ideas of what's important, what's not important. So what do we, what do, we do? How do we know? And when we talk about beyond uh, diet, we can talk about other issues of lifestyle, which might include Sabbath observance, honesty and ethics, white lies, uh, entertainment, dress, etc. The list goes on and on. How do you know what is something that's really important that you should make a big deal about? And how do you know what is a matter of, of maybe just... 
opinion. The problem is that guilt is a poor motivator, right? And so when people use guilt as a, as a way of trying to encourage people to be health reformers, it usually is not very effective. It works maybe for a time. It might work for young people. But uh, are, you, are you following? Does it, do you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever, as a young person, felt like you were just using, people were using a guilt trip maybe to make you do something or not to make you do something? It could be on either end. It could be conservatives. It could be, it could be making you feel guilty that you are conservative. You know, I mean, it could be either way. But guilt is a poor motivator. Guilt is not a very good motivator, and, and I've seen it used. I've, I've seen, for example, on one extreme, we talk about Sabbath observance. I've, I've heard youth pastors. I remember one youth pastor. I was in a youth Sabbath school, and they were talking about going to the, to the beach that evening for a sundown worship, and then they were going to go bowling or do something else. I don't remember what it was. And um, so he asked the question of his class, the Sabbath school, the youth pastor did. He said, um, so does anybody know what time sundown is? And nobody knew what time sundown was. So he said, good, because that's all legalism anyway. Well, is it? Is it legalism to be concerned about when the Sabbath ends? I mean, I was a little bit disconcerted. On the other hand, I had, I had a, a, a friend who, who went, to the shop, uh, went shopping the mall and ate probably between meals a cookie, you know, from the cookie shop. When her mother heard about it, she said, I'm going to miss you in heaven. <laughs> to her, it was obviously a big deal, you know. Ellen White talks about eating baking soda. Cookies have baking soda. So you see, within Adventism, you have the whole gamut, right? You have these extremes. And where... Where do we, how do we know what is truth? What is the right approach? Many end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And they end up realizing perhaps that, uh, you know, um, baking soda is not such a sinful issue. So they just start eating baking soda. Or they just start doing this or that. You know, they just sort of throw up their arms and get rid of the whole message of health reform. Or whatever the reform is. How can we know which issues are important and which issues are not? Is there a difference between principle and preference? And so I want us just real quickly to consider this. One thing is certain. Willful known sin will be shunned by the true Christian. Can we agree on that? <clears throat> the true Christian is not going to say, I know this is wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. Right? That's one thing we can agree upon. One... Uh, one thing that is very certain. In fact, Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 316, the righteous, righteousness of Christ will not cover one cherished sin. A man may be a lawbreaker in heart, yet if he commits no outward act of transgression, he may be regarded by the world as possessing great integrity. But God's law looks into the secrets of the heart. Every act is judged by the motives that prompt it. Only that which is in accord with the, in accord with the principles of God's law will stand in the judgment. Continuing on, she says... No repentance is genuine that does not work what? Reformation. The righteousness of Christ is not a cloak to cover unconfessed and unforsaken sin. It is a principle of life that transforms the character and controls the conduct. So no repentance is genuine that does not work reformation. So we know that the Christian, the true Christian, is not going to be knowingly, willfully engaging in that which he or she knows is wrong. In fact, in Maranatha, page 82, we read, Those who would rather die than perform a wrong act are the only ones who will be found 
faithful, right? Preparing for those last days. But what is sin? And what is simply a noble goal to be reached? There's, there could be a difference, right? Between sin and what is simply uh, our ideals. The definition that I choose to use is a very simple and straightforward definition of sin. I believe sin is a willful violation of the law of God. Now, when I say willful, that could, that could raise some questions because even if I'm not knowing that I'm sinning, I could be still sinning. But the times of this ignorance, God winks at, right? And so, so for, for our perspective, from God's perspective, it's still sin. Sin is always sin for every person in every circumstance. There's no definition for what you know. What, but God overlooks some of the times of our ignorance. So First um, John 3 verse 4 says, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And um, here we find that the ministers need to be more clear about preaching what sin is. Confrontation, page 75. And she goes on, she says, In our high calling, page 141, the only definition of sin given in the Word of God is 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. And there's about 19 statements where she says basically the same thing. The definition of sin is the same in all ages and for all people, for the standard of God's law never changes. We're not held accountable, however, for that which we do not know. Because, as we mentioned, the times of this ignorance God winked at. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now, let me just stop and, and, and look at that verse just briefly. <clears throat> Some people will say that's, those are two different definitions of sin. 1 John 3, 4 and, and James 4, 17. I don't think so. I think, I think James is actually saying the same thing as Acts 17, 30. That's what I understand. In other words, if James is not saying, now this is a new definition of sin. If you know you should have smiled at that person, but you didn't smile at them, you just sinned. I don't think that's what he's trying to say. I think he's saying, if you knew you were supposed to keep the commandments and you don't, it's sin for you. It's accounted to you. The same as Acts 17.30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Does that make sense? And uh, we will, we're, this isn't our main topic. We're not really talking about sin here and uh, soteriology. But I hope you can understand where I'm coming from. I'm looking at a very simple black and white definition of what sin and moral issues are. And now this is what Ellen White says, however, in the book Education, page 18. Higher than the highest human thought is God's ideal for his children. Godliness, God-likeness is the goal to be reached. Isn't that wonderful? God has not set before us a low goal to be reached. But this is how I feel people have approached the issue. I feel people have taken, especially sometimes as young people, we take this question about um, <clears throat> we take this question about morality or we take the question of sin and we say, okay, <clears throat> where is where is the the line of demarcation between what's a moral issue and what's a not a moral issue? And we say, okay, here's here's what's Right, and here's what's wrong. This line which, which we cannot cross. Down here is sin, right? And here is not sin. And so sometimes our approach is that we want to find how close we can live to this line without living in sin. Are you with me? Now what's the problem with that approach? <clears throat> it's dangerous. Exactly. Can, 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 can it be done, perhaps, perhaps especially by someone who hasn't grown, has, doesn't know better? But where's God's ideal? Is God's ideal right here? Do you have a comment? Yeah, I just made me think of the text of John. If, if you're trying to get as close to sin without sinning, it shows that you love sin. That's right. That's right. And so what's going to happen, what's going to happen, if this is your goal, this is your motivation, you're going to be, you're going to be heading over the line pretty soon, right? God's ideal is where? 
Is it right here next to the... Next, just, I mean, is the goal of the Christian to stop sinning? Is that the goal? <laughs> Maybe a quick question. <laughs> the goal of Christians is never to stop sinning. If that's true, then every, everybody who's in the cemetery down the road here is a perfect Christian. Right? <clears throat> they stop sinning. <clears throat> the goal of a Christian is to take... Yes, the sin comes from the life, but it's replaced by by something totally different. Let him that once cursed, bless. Let him that stole, work that he might be able to give. In other words, Paul would say also, overcome evil with good. Jesus would say, the man was, the house was swept and garnished, the, the demon was cast out, right? And it was kept clean. Isn't that wonderful? That's the goal of the Christian, right? Keep it clean. Is that the goal of the Christian? No, it has to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It has to be filled with the good. Because if you just keep it clean, seven worse demons are going to come and live in it. So if our goal is to be right here, we already got problems, guys. We've got problems. So for, for Christians, our first question should not be, well, is it a moral issue? Our first question should be, is it the best? Are you with me? Our first question should be, is it the best? Is it God's ideal? But we have to still understand where this line is because sometimes there's going to be opportunities for us to be flexible. But this line is never flexible. Are you with me? We're going to get there just, to, just, uh, just in a minute. Desire of Ages, page 311. God's ideal for His children is higher than the highest human thought can reach. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This command is a promise. The plan of redemption contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. Christ always separates the contrite soul from sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil, and He has made provision that the Holy Spirit shall be imparted to every repentant soul to keep him from sinning. Praise the Lord. That's the promise. Not just to keep him from sinning, but the complete restoration. It's all a promise, isn't it? And um, we have here Matthew 12, the, the parable I just told you about. Something better, education, page 296, is the watchword of all education, the law of all true living. Whatever Christ asks us, asks us to renounce, he offers in its stead something better. That's, what, that's the good news. He offers in his state something better. True religion brings men into harmony with the laws of God, physical, mental, and moral. It teaches self-control, serenity, temperance. Religion ennobles the mind, refines the taste, and sanctifies the judgment. It makes the soul a partaker of the purity of heaven. Faith in God's love and overruling providence lightens the burdens of anxiety and care. It fills the heart with joy and contentment in the highest or lowliest lot. Religion tends directly to promote health, to lengthen life to heighten our enjoyment of all its blessings. It opens to the soul a never-failing fountain of happiness. Would that all who have not chosen Christ might realize that He has something vastly better to offer them than they are seeking for themselves. Oh, my. The problem is that too many people are trying to live as close to sin as possible. After all, it's not a moral issue. And uh, usually these end up below the line of morality, somewhere down here. But on the other hand, you have those who say, okay, the ideal's up here somewhere. And um, therefore, <clears throat> that, 
that something better which God wishes for us to enjoy is compulsory, and if you're falling short of it, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be guilty. I'll miss you in heaven. They impugn guilt on themselves and others when they fall short. Are you with me? Are you following? And so, um, I've given you a few examples, but um, let me just, let's, let's just talk about another one. What about eating meat? Is eating clean meat sin? <clears throat> Oh, there's so many people who told me, well, it might not be for you, but it would be for me. Well, I have to agree. But why? It, let's just back up. Is eating meat, clean meat, sin, or why or why not? Not a sin because? Because God gave it to us, allowed us to eat it, right? Jesus gave us an example. It's true. Then why am I a vegetarian? You mean all these years? Okay, so I should eat basically kosher meat, right? Huh? Okay, are there advantages to eating a vegetarian diet? Yes. Is there something better? Yes. Now, I said it could be, it could be sin for me to eat meat because almost anything, while, while, while meat has been allowed... I could be simply indulging appetite because I love meat and I know it's not the best for me and I have plenty of better things to eat, but my appetite is my idol. And then it's sin, not because the meat's a sin, but because idolatry is a sin, right? Are you with me on that? So, so sometimes it does get a little more complicated and a little less black and white, but it's, the sin is always sin. It's always a violation of the law of God, you understand. It's always a violation of what God has clearly said, thou shalt not. This is a prohibition. Are you with me? And so, I believe right here that eating clean meat is, is um, well, let me, let's look at what the Spirit of Prophecy says. While we do not make the use of flesh meat a test, while we do not want to force anyone to give up its use, if it was sin, would she say that? When we do evangelism and someone is living with someone who's not their spouse, we believe that's sin, and so we ask them either to get married or to separate if they want to be baptized. Because we don't believe someone should be living in open, known violation of God's word when they are, you know, professing to be dying to self and joining the body of Christ. But we don't ask people to stop eating meat, clean meat. The reason is because we don't believe that it is sin. It is our duty to, make, to request that no minister of the conference shall make light of or oppose the message of reform on this point. In this country, talking about Australia, there is an organized vegetarian society, but its numbers are comparatively few. Among the people in general, meat is largely used by all classes. It is the cheapest article of food. And even where poverty abounds, meat is usually found upon the table. Therefore, there is the more need of handling wisely the question of meat eating. In regard to this matter, there should be no rash movements. We should consider the situation of the people and the power of lifelong habits and practices and should be careful not to urge our ideas upon others as if this question were a test and those who eat large of meat were the greatest sinners. Do you know Ellen White wrote that? You know, Ellen White, for all the bad rap she gets sometimes, I think it's just because people haven't read her very well. They take out certain things she wrote and they say, wow, She's harsh and extreme and radical. I think she's actually very balanced. And here she's saying, look, eating clean meat is not a test, right? So if you were to make a definition, 
And uh, we talked about the situations where appetite and so forth, meat eating could be sinful for us, right? But if you could talk about just on its own merits, eating clean meat, appropriate clean meat, kosher meat, whatever, would you say that it's above or below the moral line, you might say? It's above, right? It's not God's ideal, but it's, it's not to be considered sinful in and of itself, right? I'm telling you, there's a lot of conservative Adventists that would have a hard time with that because they, we just have a hard time understanding that anything less than the ideal isn't sinful. But we've got, to, we've got to shift gears from saying we're doing this Reformation because you should feel guilty if you're not to saying we want the Reformation because there's something better that God has for us. And the positive motivation is always, in my experience, more successful than a guilt motivation. God has something better for us. And so I use the term principle to describe that which the law of God requires and I must never deviate from, regardless of the consequences. I, would I eat clean meat? Well, I remember, I can tell you a couple stories, but I'll just tell you one. I remember one time I went to my friend's house. He was homeschooled. They were Sabbatarians. They weren't vegetarian. And um, I was staying with them, and the mother was kind enough to make special considerations for my diet. I'm gluten-free, have been since I was six months old. And um, she had made this uh, bean casserole, like pinto beans and cheese and beef. And, you know, it was all bubbling and everything else. And um, she said to me, she said, Chester, very proud of herself, I didn't put any beef in this corner. So what do you do? Now, I'd never, I was a vegetarian, let me tell you. I'd, I had never ate anything that had a face or a mama. And um, I wasn't too keen on eating beef. Would it be wrong for me to eat that? You know, I think there are times when to avoid offending someone else, I would yield what would be my preference as long as it's not a matter of principle. Now, there are plenty of times that you might say, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I might offend someone if I eat that. <laughs> I better eat it. That's not, that's not the attitude. Many times, people are very understanding. And I've also been to many parts of the world where diet is a very big part of hospitality. And I've just had to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I already ate, and I can't eat it. Well, for one thing, you can't eat it at everyone's home. You'll become sick. And when you're going from jungle, from house to house, Maybe you ate at one home, you'd become sick. But um, you just have, many times people understand your culture's different, you're different, you choose to be different. You don't have to offend people. But in order to not offend someone, sometimes you need to be able to yield that which you would not. Now, would I feel guilty then? If I, if I thought, you see, if I don't have a right understanding of these, the difference between what I want is something better and what is God's, Minimum, if you please, a moral standard. I might feel guilty if I had a little bit of clean meat, but I don't need to if I'm doing it for the right reasons. Are you with me on that? Now, please don't go from here and say, Chester said I can eat as much meat as I want. Um, but uh, for lack of better terms, I use the word preferences to describe the something better which God prefers me to enjoy and which the converted heart will learn to seek. That's what we want. We want the very best. And what's, the, what's God's ideal? Higher than the highest human thought can reach, right? I, 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 I hesitate to even draw it on the board here because it's way up there far beyond where this board reaches, right? 
That's where God wants us. And the converted heart is going to want to be there. It's not going to be looking for reasons to, to yield our preferences in order to get that, eat that, or do that, or wear that, or go there, or whatever it is. But you need to be able to sit down and you need to be able to say, okay, this is the reason why I believe this is something right or this is the reason why I'm wanting to do this. And understand what is the difference between a principle and a preference. Are you with me? I'll give you one other example really quick. And hopefully, hopefully you'll leave here and not have, um, think I'm either an extremist or apostate. But um, <clears throat> I, was, I, was, I was raised in a home where we didn't have much time for sports. We were just pretty much in, involved in practical duties. And we grew, we had a garden, and we, you know, I mean, I had a basketball hoop, and I played basketball, but we weren't into sports. I had some friends, um, particularly later on, um, that were very much along the lines, we studied the spirit of prophecy, and say sports are, are wrong, sports are harmful. And I, in myself, when I was about 18, I came to the conviction that I had to quit playing basketball. Um, I'll tell you why I came to that conviction. I came back consistently from basketball games. And at that time in my life, I had a habit. This was after my reconversion experience. And God was working on things. A revival and a reformation go together, right? And um, God was working on my heart with things that I needed to reform. And I would come back from... I, uh, Ellen White says we should read 1 Corinthians 13 every day. So that's what I was doing. I was reading 1 Corinthians 13 every day. And I was praying about that, that passage. And that passage describes God's character, right? Agape love. And um, I would come back from a basketball game, and I'd be, have my Bible open, kneeling by my bed at night, and I'd be reading, Love vaunteth not itself. Love seeks not her own. Love is not puffed up. And over and over, I was like, that is the antithesis of what I'm practicing on the basketball court. And, and I, can't, I can't say, you know, I can't say this is for everyone, but for me, I, I came to the conviction that I had to quit playing basketball. Fast forward about three years. I finished college. I was, um, I was in Moreno Valley, California as associate pastor. And I was, one of my jobs was to um, expand the grade school from K to, 12, K to 8 to include 9 to 12. And so I was helping with that. I was the principal of the, of the academy. We started there. And um, all we had, we didn't have a work-study program. I mean, I knew the Council of Spirit of Prophecy and Education, right? But we had a parking lot, and it was asphalt. We weren't growing anything on that, you know? I mean, it was, there wasn't, and, and, and when, when the kids had breaks from their classes, what were they going to do? They were going to go out, and they would use the, the lines on the parking lot for, you know, um, for 10-yard uh, lines, and they'd play two-hand touch football. But me, I'd sit and watch them because I didn't play sports. And it took some time for the Holy Spirit to convict me that while sports had been my idol and something I had been called to give up, at this point, I needed to be spending time with those boys to win their hearts, to work for their salvation. And I'll never forget, this was after it took a month or so, and I started just playing touch with them. And some of my friends, I know if they'd seen me, they would have thought I'd apostatized. They would have told me, you're now sinning. You know? But I came to the conviction, this was a preference that God had led me to. It was an ideal that I wanted, but right now, for their sake, I was going to yield that ideal. And I remember first semester ended, and 
Second semester began, a new student came who had gone to eighth grade with them, but then had transferred out to Loma Linda Academy or one of the other academies, and now is coming back. And um, he had been classmates with them. And the first couple days, he just stood on the sidelines, and he was watching them play. And I remember that two, two of my students got in an argument, Anthony and Brad. And, 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 and Brad said, I just want you to know that was an illegal hold. And Anthony said, well, take the penalty. And Anthony says, no, uh, Brad says, I, I don't want the penalty. I just want you to no, don't do it again, you know. He said, no, take the penalty. No, I don't want the penalty. Take the penalty. And the, and the student who had been gone for six months, they weren't angry, but they were insistent, you know. The student, he said, what has happened to you guys? You're trying to give each other the game. Like, that's not even, you know, they had totally changed the way they were relating to one another in their games. And I said, praise the Lord. Something was taking place in their hearts. Something was happening. And um, I, to this day, I believe God led me, and I believe it was the right decision, even though some people would feel I had gone off the deep end by playing football. I believe God led me to do what was the best thing for them. And uh, one of those young men you've, you've heard of, he was a ninth grader. Um, he's become more well-known among youth in Adventism. His name is Israel Ramos. And um, he was one of, the, one of those boys that I spent time playing football with on the parking lot in the church. And I believe the Holy Spirit used that whole experience that year to help reach his heart. And um, be willing to yield preferences for other people. And I think if we had time to look at Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 9, we, uh, we would see that. So principles must never be compromised in any situation for any reason. There's nothing that could induce me to say eat pork or drink coffee because I believe those are principles, okay? I believe those are things that have been prohibited, if you please. And even if someone's offended, I have to run that risk. The devil's temptation is for us to rationalize, and Daniel didn't rationalize. Those who would rather die than perform one wrong act are the only ones who will be found faithful Principles, however, uh, preferences may be yielded when the law of self-sacrificing love requires it. Therefore, if meat make my brother offend, I'll eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. And so, this would be my conclusions. And uh, God bless you as you consider, to consider these issues and try to study as you bring reformation to your own life. Let's bring it for the right reasons. Amen. Let's not bring it because of guilt, but because God has something better for us. And, well, there may be some things that are moral issues that we need to be reformed in, too. And um, then God brings us forgiveness as well as restoration to his image. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we are thankful you've given us these few minutes. We've tried to cover a lot of topics, a lot of ground. I just pray that you'll help this to be meaningful and useful information. Lord, we want to be the continuation of the Reformation. And as a people, this health message is very dear to us and very important to us and important to our mental and spiritual health. So today, Father, I just pray that we might seek the very best that you have to offer us, that you'll help us to seek the higher than the highest human thought can reach ideal, that we might not try to simply ask, is that a moral issue, and try to live as close to immorality as possible that we'll want to take those sins from our lives and to fill our lives with something better, the very best. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.